This episode of the 614 Startups Podcast is brought to you by Ecove Capital. Are you a researcher or an inventor with a product or technology you want to commercialize and you're not quite sure how to get started? The team at Ecove can help you validate your idea, secure funding, and provide the support necessary to help your startup succeed. Check out Ecove Capital for more details. And Thompson Hine. Whether you just have an idea or a newly created startup or already working to scale, Thompson Hines' team of early and growth stage attorneys will provide you the support you need to get funded and succeed. Created to meet the needs and budgets of startups, Thompson Hines' quick launch has menu-based pricing and tons of great content. Visit thquicklaunch.com today. 614 Startups Nation, welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. This is Elio Harmon, your host, and I have a very special guest. She's probably the busiest woman in the industry. She has about 18 jobs. She's going to tell us about all of them, especially Matter News. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you for having me. So even before we met in person, yes, we met online. We did. Right? So it was IG, right? Which yes. is how I connect with a lot of people. I did and not you're pretty ex- active on there. <laughs> yes. I didn't expect for an IG interview to have such curveballs thrown at me. So I appreciate that you take your social media interviews just as seriously yeah, as this is this, this is this is the height of journalism here, yes. okay? So are you ready? <laughs> no, you, it really is. You're doing great, great journalistic work. Thank you. Now, what attracted <laughs> me to you was this piece that you did on affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just as a, right out of the gate, you guys started punching pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And you didn't pull any punches at all. Mm-hmm. You probably ruffled some feathers there. So I said, you know what? At some point, I wanted to get you on the show, both on the media side, but just on covering news and sure. doing good journalism. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the thick of things, yes, let's hear a little bit about your background. Okay. So my name is Cassie Young, and I am about 30 years old. I've lived in Columbus my whole life. I'm not about, I am 30 years old. I've lived in Columbus um, my whole life, except for, you know, four years away at undergrad and one year um, living in Washington, D.C. So I've been here most of my life. And I guess I'll just start kind of with my background. Growing up, I've always had this kind of feeling that I really wanted to do, you know, really important work, civil rights type work. But when I was growing up and kind of the history that I was given, I felt like that the biggest time in history you could have made an impact was like during the civil rights movement or during slavery. And I always really wanted to like, feel like I could have, I would have done that back then. And as I got a little bit older and went to college, I went to Miami of Ohio and studied politics, Latin America, Spanish, and a lot of uh, imperialism and started to realize that actually we do live in such a time. It's just further along kind of in our evolution. So I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something kind of helping people. I've always been a pretty empathetic person. And so right out of college, I went um, and lived in Washington, D.C. for a year working for a lobbying firm. So I had interned for them when I was an undergrad and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to like law school. I thought maybe I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. Um, And so they said, come work for us while you're trying to figure it out. And that happened to be 2011 during Occupy Wall Street. And so right outside, we were, you know, right across from the White House, our office was, and the encampments for Occupy Wall Street were right outside our offices. And I was seeing kind of the inside money game and political game at the same time that I was seeing kind of like a really big public outcry against it. And so 
I was, you know, had kind of moved to DC thinking it's a cool city. I never was the type that was like, oh, I hate Ohio. It's so boring or anything like that. But, you know, kind of wanted a more exciting city. And I thought if you're interested in politics or like world affairs, things like that, the place you can make a difference is DC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so <laughs> I uh, realized after a year living there, what I didn't expect is I missed the Midwest pace of life. That I didn't realize how accustomed I was to people are friendly here, but not too friendly. <laughs> They're, uh, you know, life is kind of a nice pace. It's not too fast, not too slow. And I had a lot of family and friends back here. So I decided, you know, I can do good work anywhere. It doesn't have to be DC. Um, So when I moved back to Columbus, the first job I happened to get was as a caseworker at Franklin County Child Support Enforcement Agency. So when I say that, a lot of people think I mean children's services, but it's not... um, you know, foster children and things like that. It's instead um, for parents who are not together, helping um, mediate finance, financial obligations and things like that, like child support orders. So uh, a little bit into that work, I realized like, you know what? I think I kind of like this social services, you know, being in the government thing, but I know that casework isn't really for me because I'm a systems thinker. And when, for some people, helping people one-on-one really energizes them. And for me, it just like, decreases my energy because I'm like, why are we stuck in these cycles? I just want to do do something about that. So um, I decided to go get my master's in public policy and social work from Ohio State, the Ohio State University, and uh, wanted to get into a position in government where I could actually change, like, uh, impact policies and programs. So got my master's and luckily uh, we got a federal grant uh, project uh, where we were able to run research trials to improve government programs for citizens. And that's what I'm currently doing for my full-time day job. Okay, awesome. So, um, you know, as a kid, a lot of us have dreams of what we want to be, right? Your thing, what do you think it was when you were so young that you were so attracted where you're probably watching things like Eye on a Prize and mm. PBS specials about the Vietnam War and things like that. What do you feel? Was it always there? Was no. it a mentor, somebody in the family? How did you get introduced Ooh. to this idea and something that completely took a hold of you? I, I don't know. That's a really good question. And honestly, growing up, I remember even in high school, like taking my government class and thinking, I'm actually, I wasn't interested in politics. And I was like, you know, it's just, I don't like how divisive it was. I remember that that was kind of my main reason. Um, And I was totally like the opposite, I would say, as I am now. Um, And so I don't know what kind of, I always knew that I wanted to make a big impact, but the fact that I don't think that I had a sense that I'd be able to do that, especially in the capacities that I have now. I I didn't know until college that I was interested in politics and and started kind of um, studying government and stuff like that. So I I call it my million little things theory that I have trouble answering questions like yours because often there is some kind of precipitating, um, you know, event. But for a lot of the things for me, it's really difficult to pull those out or give too much weight to any one thing because I truly believe you have a million little experiences and people that kind of push and pull you in different directions that you, you know, it's hard to say. All right. Well, I get it. Now, the natural thing it feels like if you want to be in government and you want to make changes, go to D.C. Mm -hmm. What happened in D.C. to either affirm that perception that people have? Hey, if I want to make big Mm -hmm. impact, I go to D.C. Or what kind of turned you against, you know, Mm -hmm. like that changed your mind Mm -hmm. about whether or not D.C. is the place to make the kind of change you want to make? That's a great question. Honestly, I think that, yeah, we tend to think that you can make the biggest change at higher levels or, you know, in kind of the mecca of wherever your industry is. But, and that might be true in some instances, but I think particularly with like government and politics, um, 
specifically politics, but also government in a lot of ways, the lower down you are on the totem pole, almost the more freedom you have to change things, the more ability you have to um, change the way that like services are being delivered or, you know, at least the politics at a, at a more local level, you can influence more. Um, so that's, I think, where kind of my, my thinking on that change is in D.C., you're a very, very tiny fish in a huge pond. And um, in your hometown in Columbus and in, in more reg- regular, I guess, quote unquote cities, um, you can have a much bigger impact at the local level, I think. So you come back, you get this job, and it's probably not using your strengths, which you describe as system thinking, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, the, the frustration of almost every case kind of looks the same. Mm-hmm. The people might be different. The names might change. The number of kids, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it feels like this cycle mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so are you dabbling in business throughout that process? How do you come to the conclusion that, hey, in addition to doing this, I'm also going to launch a company? And uh, is Matter News your first company that you tried to launch? Really great question. So like I said earlier in the interview, I went to grad school because I realized, you know, I'm a systems thinker. If I want to kind of get into the type of positions that's going to suit me in government, I need an advanced degree. I need to learn more about public policy. I wanted to get more um, informed on social work because of um, being in the social services. And luckily, like before I was even done with school, I ended up in the exact type of position that I wanted to be in when I when I decided to go to school. I was doing or am currently doing the most innovative work you can be doing in government. It, we are running randomized research trials the way that you do with a new drug that you're testing to prove that there's better ways of setting up government systems so that citizens can be more successful in them. So what I realized once I got into that position and in this position, I work with multiple levels of government. So we're working with the federal partners, which are like the Office of Child Support on the federal level, state partners, Office of Child Support on the state level, county and with the county government, and then social researchers. So there's a lot of parties at the table. It's all levels of government. And I started realizing that, you know, if we, I really want to create big change, fundamental change in government, I think it's really important to have people like me working hard on that on the inside. But I feel like the real place where we're, and there are a lot of really good people and a lot of great things happening in terms of government kind of evolving, and I'm really energized by it. But at the same time, it isn't enough. And people started telling me they learn more from my Instagram than from the local news. So I realized there was a gap. Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole because you said something that really fascinates me, which is social experiments. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing this kind of work, Mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated, Mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing with government organizations Mm -hmm. uh, or government entities, and it's your personal life. Mm -hmm. Do people understand that they are part of a research study? Like, are they signing off? And if you can't talk about it, just say no comment. No, I can't. It's a great question. Um, In our case, most people did not know. Mm. Now, there is something called the IRB, the International Review Board, and basically they're the clearinghouse for studies like this. So we did have to, um, through researchers that do this full-time, had to apply and get it approved, explain exactly what we were doing, and they essentially have to kind of make some determination that the benefits, potential benefits outweigh the risks, that there aren't um, certain laws and things being violated. In the case of what we were doing, I think we were on, you know, a safe side of things. But at the end of the day, yes, it sounds kind of paternalistic or, or kind of scary if, if the government's doing research. In this case, it's very benign. It's changing forms to make them easier to navigate. It's providing um, tailored and proactive outreach to clients to help them through um, processes. And we realized a 30% increase um, 
um, Im improvement in the amount of people who were who able to get through this particular government process, which was getting a recalculation of your child support order. So we don't know going into it whether what we create, the intervention we create, is going to have a positive impact, no impact, or maybe even negative. But what we know is what we're doing right now isn't working. Mm -hmm. And our results are very bad. Generally for government programs, the results for government programs and the, um, the rate at which people comply with them is extremely low. So we know that what we're doing isn't working. And so anything that we can try to do to innovate, unfortunately, yes, there is that risk that it could potentially cause damage, but the people that are way smarter than us that understand kind of the ethics of these things um, do review and approve these things. Gotcha. Yes. I'm always curious about mm -hmm. that. All right. Now, you said your Instagram feed. Yes. Right? So I, when I follow somebody, mm -hmm. I like, follow them for real, right? <laughs> so that. I like, you know, probably a good percentage of the people that I follow, I kind of know what they post right. on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. uh, you said people started to tell you mm -hmm. that your Instagram feed was providing them more information than their local news. Mm -hmm. Was it that feedback that made you want to do uh, a company that kind of, or media company, or were you all already intending to do that? And that was kind of your, your test case, your beta. So it was one of those moments that kind of pushed me toward it. Um, when I really thought about, you know, what I think about all the time, what would make government programs like mine improve at a quicker rate or, you know, put more momentum behind that. And for me, my theory of change is like people can't advocate for themselves and advocate for government change or push for that unless they're properly educated first on, on you know, what the current system is and, and what could be changed or where, what the solutions look like. So yeah, those comments made me realize. So I was posting mostly at that time around when I was getting a lot of those comments about Columbus City Council and um, what I consider a kind of structurally corrupt way that it that it is in place. And people that I would never expect were hitting me up like, where can I learn more about this? And I didn't have anywhere that I could turn them to. The only reason I knew the depth and nuance that I knew about the situation in Columbus is because I've been an activist, I've been in the activist community, and I know people who are very active in government and politics. So I realized, you know, if we really want to make change in this community, we have to have at least a better baseline of information for people. All right. Uh, I know you have a co-founding team. Give yes. us the, the who, who are the folks that are involved in Matter News kind of as the core group of people. Sure. And then give us your... Uh value proposition, right? What, what do you mm -hmm. do and, and who do you help and, and how do you do it? Sure. So one of my co-founders, Jalen Grisso, she traces a lot back to the Trump election because when, when President was Trump, Trump was elected, you know, there was a bit of an attack on the press and the press was kind of like, up, like this is a call to arms. She was working for Mother Jones Magazine at the time, which is a big nonprofit um, news outlet. And uh, so there was a lot of energy kind of behind that. And it's interesting because I didn't really think about the Trump election as much, but it really was kind of the starting point for me as well in getting really thinking about what's the, what are the root cause things that we need to address. So um, what I, for about a year after that, I was just kind of meeting with some friends that would meet with me to try, try to kind of fumble through figuring out what we could do in this vein or how I could 
make an, a local news outlet. I have no idea. I have no journalism background. I don't really have any skills or knowledge or money that can help me go through with this, but I just had a really strong intuition. And that's something I really encourage people. I don't know the answer to how you increase your intuition or your attunement to your intuition or how you figure out what's intuition versus other things. But I just had a really strong intuition and I knew that I'm going to figure out how to build this thing. I bought camera equipment with my savings and I started making a documentary about what I thought was one of the most important and most buzzed about things in Columbus, but one of the least things that we actually have context and depth around. And that's the development of the city, the growth and development. Luckily, two months in, I was on a shoot with Loose Films, who are here in this building, and I met Jalen and just started telling her about my idea. And, you know, we just hit it off immediately and decided to found Matter News. And then luckily, a couple months after that, I uh, recruited a journalist at OSU's The Lantern had written this really cool um, interactive piece. And she's since become a co-founder as well, Wrist Twig. Um, So there are three of us uh, powerhouse women at the helm. Uh, And then we also have a great all-volunteer team. We are all-volunteer as well up to this point that help contribute on content. Okay, great. So give it to me, the the value proposition. So you cover all subjects, Mm -mm. you're in the name. I know it's it's focused locally. So what is it that you guys, are you digital only? Are you going to go to print? Lay it on me. So we are digitally focused. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously that's not so unique nowadays. We have a lot of new media that's digitally focused, but I would say um, one way that we're really unique is we're multimedia. So not a lot of outlets are truly multimedia and creating story or telling stories in the way that the format that best fits that story. So we do not go into it saying, hey, we want to make two documentaries this year. And what we say, we have these stories that come about. And then when we go to figure out how do we want to tell this story, what is the medium that would best tell this story? And then we create in that way. The other thing is that we are nonprofit. So that is not unique either. Actually, the for-profit news industry is very much declining. It's dying. It's being consolidated, bought up, um, and slashed. And I'd love to talk a little bit about what that looks like in Columbus. But um, we are nonprofit, one of over 200 nonprofit news uh, rooms across the country. It's growing. There's the Institute for nonprofit news at the, at the national level that's really facilitating a lot of that and acts as our fiscal sponsor um, because we're working on getting our own uh, 501c3 uh, nonprofit status. Okay. People can check out Matter News online, right? I want to get into um, the heart of the issue of the importance of the media, right, of journalism, yes. since I have you as a journalist mm-hmm. here. You made a comment before about city council and structural corruption. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that to the side. We're mm-hmm. going to come back and handle that. Cool. But you said that your co-founder really got engaged. I mean, she was working for Mother Jones mm-hmm. and then the issue with Trump and the attack on the media. But then you yourself, you're saying that the, the traditional media, the so-called mainstream media, is in decline. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes their coverage is skewed based on the people who are advertising on the platform. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about Trump attacking the media, in some ways an attack is always most effective if it has a little bit of truth to it, Mm -hmm. right? You're choosing to go the nonprofit route. I mean, how do you deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. So clearly there's an attack. The media is important, but there are structural issues in the media as well that that, that are also worth discussing. So how do you approach that? Absolutely. So we chose the nonprofit model because we believe it's the most ethical. The journalism industry is known as the fourth estate. 
It is the check on all three branches of government. It is the watchdog that we need to have a fair and democratic society. So we feel like uh, the for-profit industry, because of just the nature of the way newspapers were and kind of the real estate that they held, it, you know, I don't think that advertisements should have ever been the main source of revenue for news, but that's just how it worked because of the newspaper industry and things like that. And so, yeah, when, when the bulk of your funding comes from advertisers that have a profit motive, you are going to be swayed from covering certain things. And we don't want that to be the case for us. So we will not never advertise. We don't currently, we won't not ever, but it will never make up a considerable portion of our budget where it would impact us. So we haven't landed on a percent, but say it's like 5% of our, but no more than 5% of our budget can come from ads, for example. Oh, but even then, mm-hmm. right, how do you ensure mm-hmm that the bent Mm -hmm. of the founders' philosophies, Mm -hmm. ideologies, political leanings don't also Mm -hmm. influence the way that the news is reported. So advertisers lean the news in one direction, but we also see Mm -hmm. that you can have one story reported in two different outlets, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you would think that these are two different incidents so how does Matter News now in, in this new world of being a nonprofit and trying mm-hmm. to call balls and strikes and, sure. and just report the news, how, what, what are some boundaries that you've put in place mm-hmm. with you and your founders to make sure that you guys are not allowing mm-hmm. your views to also skew the way that you report? Objectivity is something that kept me up at night before I founded Matter. I was like, how do I ensure that people don't tune out from what we're doing just because they think that, you know, the people that are running the outlet are a little on the liberal side or whatever it may be. And um, people gave me really good advice. I think actually it might have even been um, Donald Washington, who you've had on the show, who is a friend of mine. And he, I think it was him who really was like, you know, don't worry about that if you're making quality content, that's what matters. And it will come out, you know, in your content, whether you're skewing things or not. And that will kind of play out in, in the way people perceive you. And the thing is, the problem with the news, I think, nowadays is that they claim objectivity. And we know that any system, any product, it takes on the biases of the people that create it. And so we don't claim objectivity, first of all, and we won't pretend like that's what we're aiming for 100%, but we are also not advocacy journalism. So you shouldn't see a major bend in our coverage. Um, And the way that we tackle that is that in the future, the issues. So right now, and I didn't get to mention this yet, and it's very important. We don't cover just anything. We cover specific issues and we have a deep dive model. So rather than covering a bunch of scattered things, surface level, we are taking a deep dive to give nuance and depth to a specific issue that's important in Columbus. Right now, that's growth and development. All of our content relates to that. Um, But in the future, we're going to choose future issues with input from the community. One of my biggest frustrations is that the news doesn't talk about what we care about. So we want to be a community-informed newsroom that is actually making a lot of decisions about the things we're covering with community input. So we aren't making those decisions in the newsroom. Is there a room for dissent at Matter News within the newsroom? Oh, absolutely. We we are a young team. 
a very young team. Uh, I would say we tend to be just radical people. And by radical, um, Angela Davis said, radical simply means grasping things at the root. And we really want to get to the root of things. And that means challenging each other and questioning and not being so sure that the way that you're thinking about something is right. Um, So we have really fostered a culture of we've had a team development workshop. We're a one-year-old nonprofit with an all-volunteer staff. We've done team development workshops. Um, We have a bunch of things in place with strategic planning and and kind of making sure that we as a management team are checking in and really keeping tabs on things and going about things in a super intentional way. All right. Now, so because you go deep, you're now my subject matter expert on growth in Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) So give me the lay of the land. What's happening in the city? Yeah. So we're supposed to add another million people next decade or so. It's really hard, I think, for people to even make really accurate estimates because we know that climate change is ramping up. I've once heard that Ohio, and I don't know if this is true, but Ohio is one of the best situated states in the country in terms of climate threats. We don't have fires like out west. We don't have, you know, we're not on the coast, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think it's really hard to say. And especially with the housing affordability issue, people are flocking here from more expensive cities. So I think that the estimates could even be a little bit conservative, but that's what's happening with growth right now is that we are a decently affordable city. We're the 14th largest. Um, we're, you know, we're basically growing at an intense pace. And I think that we have a unique opportunity, unlike other cities that blew up back in the day. We're now in the information age. You know, we can learn from those cities, we can learn from our peers. We can learn from all of this great technology we have now and avoid, I think, some of the pitfalls that other cities have encountered. What I talk about in the first article we have on the website, it's from me talking about why we're going to cover, why we're covering development. I talk about the city of Columbus has commissioned a study where they had a couple of firms First of all, just look at their development initiatives and tell them, what do you think our goals are? Because they didn't have any stated goals. And then how are we doing on those goals? So they determined that we have six goals, and I think they're all great in concept. It's a downtown powerhouse, regional economic engine, job center, and then revitalized neighborhoods, sustainable development, and equitable development. They essentially concluded that they're doing great on the first three, which is the regional economic engine, job center, downtown powerhouse, but that there are not very many policies actually aligned with the other three goals that relate to equitable and sustainable development. So I think that I'm seeing a lot of unevenness. I'm hearing people talking about, you know, lamenting about how many high-rise, high-income condos are going in versus um, affordable housing in the city. And the affordable housing issue, I think most people are probably aware, is um, really bad in a lot of cities, but really bad in Columbus. And homelessness issues um, are increasing. I think a couple years ago, Franklin County's homeless family homelessness rate was twice the national average. So we have a lot here that we need to be paying attention to in relation to development. Like I said, affordable housing, transportation, um, economic development. Should we be incentivizing the Amazons of the world or should we be incentivizing small businesses? Yeah, that's the trillion dollar question, right? Mm -hmm. For lack of a better way of of framing it, right? You, large cities all over the country that expect growth are not going to grow equitably, Mm -hmm. right? So, because we exist in an economy where it's a winner-take-all situation. You said, quoting you now, that city council has issues around structural corruption. Yes. Define structural corruption 
so I don't make any assumptions sure. about what you mean by that. So I was taught this distinction kind of comes from a conversation I was having with my uncle over the Christmas holiday. I was telling him about kind of my view of what makes Columbus City Council corrupt. And those are three major factors. One is that we have- now, are we just staying on the issue of growth, the final three things that we're not maybe doing so well, which is the equitable issue? Or do you mean about how all things are decided by city council. So where I was going with it is basically the the three structural things about council that impact their decisions on everything including the way it's formulated. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So for Columbus City Council, we are one of the largest cities in the United States that have or the largest city in the United States that has what's called an at-large uh, system. And an at-large system means that we have seven city council people and all seven of them represent the entire city. So you don't have any one representative for your area. Mm -hmm. And for a city this large, that can mean, you know, a lot of underrepresented voices might get lost in the shuffle. The people that fund those campaigns might get hurt a little bit more. The other thing is that when you have a system like that in a city this big, you can't, you can't win the votes of that many people without major name recognition, backing from the party that's in power, which right now is the Democratic Party, or tons of money. So that's one issue. Another is that Columbus, until recently, had no campaign contribution uh, limits to city council campaigns and now has among the highest limit in the country, actually like way higher than even the state the state's limit. Um, so just the amount of money that power players can pour into those campaigns is, is pretty high. And then the third thing is that none of that really even matters that much considering the fact that almost every city council person is initially appointed and not elected. So most people, and I didn't know this, even though I'm pretty dialed in and I didn't really know this till a couple years ago, that city council people in Columbus are initially appointed by city council itself. And then when they get up for re-election, they've already got the name recognition, they're anointed by the Democratic Party, and they have all those resources that come around, along with the Democratic Party. So that's why Columbus has 100% Democrat city council. We are not 100% Democrat city. There should be some Republicans, there should be some independents on our council, but there is not because the Democrats have a total pretty much control. And when I explained this to my uncle, he said, you know, it sounds like it's a different strain of corruption. It's like you think of the Chicago's and you think of people's palms are getting greased for specific deals. Here, it's not that. And, and actually, our most recent piece's title speaks to this. We quoted a Republican Party official from here in Columbus who said, quote unquote, they're all friends down there. He said, I don't think that people, developers pay, give city council contributions for specific development decisions. It's just that they take care of city council. City council kind of take care of takes care of them. So the title of that piece is, they're all friends down there. Developers give $440,000 to city officials in four years. So give me a specific example in the development area where you could point to this kind of manifesting itself, right? Where the incentives are misaligned and it's probably because of some of these structural issues. Do you have anything that you've covered where, where this is evident? I mean, if you look at a lot of the major developments around town that are receiving tax incentives. So we talk about this. Tax abatements has, has been a huge topic of conversation. There's been teacher strikes, um, you know, this year in Columbus over the tax abatements um, because it, for people that might not be aware, for large-scale developments um, to sort of incentivize development um, in certain neighborhoods, the city of Columbus will give a certain period of time um, a break on those property taxes. And... Um, 
I think like 87 cents on the dollar of a property tax dollar goes to the schools. So that means every time one of these big developments is getting those property tax abatements, that's technically funding that would have gone to the schools and other services like fire, et cetera. And if you look at the companies that are getting those tax incentives, you know, they are some of those companies that show up in our investigation of having um, contributed a lot of money. And if you look at what they're getting versus what they're actually spending on the campaigns, that's a huge return on investment. So nothing that I can point to and say like, you know, a deal kind of, like I said, I don't think that it's as easy to point to this corruption. I think that it's more baked in than it is transactional. So- um, Makes sense, yeah. makes sense. Great I question. Get I get it. All right, so before we wrap up, mm -hmm. if people are interested in learning more, if people are interested in donating, because yes. you guys are a nonprofit, mm -hmm. if you have events coming up, mm -hmm. let us know how we can help you out. You can find all of um, most of our content on matternews.org. So that's where most of our content lives. And we won't always be digital. We'll have, you know, hopefully some print uh, uh, eventually, but mostly digital. And then um, follow us on social media at matternews underscore. We're on all the major platforms and really just reading and sharing our content because right now we're just trying to get more people aware of us. And if you are inclined to donate, uh, matternews.org slash donate. Uh, we just had our first major fundraiser. So um, we have a little bit of a budget now, um, but it's a tiny budget. So we we need a lot more support to become a fully um, functioning nonprofit and news outlet. And yeah, we appreciate everyone liking and sharing the content. That's the biggest thing. And that content is all free. I want to make sure we have not mentioned throughout this actually at all that um, the biggest thing about being a nonprofit, about going this route, is that we want to provide all of this content free of charge, no paywalls, no subscription fees. All right. Well, I wouldn't have you on the show if I didn't think you were doing good work. I think your reporting is solid. I think you guys do really commit to going in depth. And when you read an article from Matter, it, it shows. Uh, I close out every podcast with my one takeaway. And here's my takeaway from this one. You ask tough questions, but you can also answer tough questions. I'm glad that you gave me an opportunity to share this time with you. If you're an entrepreneur, you always need to be prepared to answer the tough questions. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode. Peace. Six one four Startups Nation. It's a wrap. Thank you for listening. You can listen to this podcast on our website, www.614startups.com, and on all your favorite podcast channels like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Google Podcasts. Make sure you like, subscribe, and comment. Also, 614startups.com is your one-stop shop for Columbus startup news, interviews, and events. Make sure you make 614startups.com part of your daily routine to stay up to date.